0: Hack magazine explores science, society, and the environment from a coastal perspective. Today's feature article, which was originally published by our friends at High Country News, is In Nome, where the muskoxen roam, controversially. In Alaska, residents are negotiating a contentious relationship with muskoxen, which were introduced to the area decades ago without local consent. By Megan Gannon. Read by me, Heather Walter. By the afternoon of December 13, 2022, idyllic winter conditions had finally arrived in Nome, Alaska. Famous for hosting the finish of the Iditarod sled dog race, this remote town is closer to Russia than it is to Anchorage. Here, vast tundra landscapes meet the sea ice that forms over the Bering Strait. A series of dreaded rain-on-snow events earlier in the month had made winter travel miserable. But now, a fresh white blanket covered the rolling hills, reflecting the pinks and blues of a clear subarctic sky. Snow machines were whining, and the local mushers were looking forward to another season of exercising their sled dogs. One of them, Curtis Warland, took a break from work to visit his kennel on the outskirts of Nome. Warland was a court services officer for the Alaska State Troopers, a job that involved prisoner transport and court security. At the kennel, though, he had other obligations. Keeping a dog lot anywhere requires a constant loop of chores—feeding dogs, running dogs, scooping up dog poop. But keeping one in Nome comes with additional responsibilities—monitoring threats from musk oxen, stubborn, shaggy animals with formidable horns, and a record of attacking dogs. During his decade as a musher, Warland, 36, had seen Gnome's muskoxen problems increase. He shared the dog lot with his wife and their friends, and about once a week, when muskoxen got too close, he took on the task of keeping them away. On December 13th, he was on a snow machine, trying to scare off a herd that had come within a quarter mile of the lot. No one else witnessed what happened, but one of the animals charged him. Worland received a fatal laceration to his femoral artery, and by the time emergency responders arrived, he had bled out. The portrait that the Alaska State Troopers released in their announcement of his death shows a serious-looking man in a uniform and a fur hat. But in the slideshow during his memorial service at the local recreation center, Worland is often wearing an open-mouthed smile or tearing it up on a dance floor. Sudden deaths are painful in any small town. Nome has around 3,700 people, and Warland was a well-liked member of the community, remembered for his adventurous spirit and love of hunting and the outdoors. Warland was also Nome's first muskox-related human fatality. On the Monday afternoon following his death, nearly 20 residents crowded into a small conference room at the University of Alaska Fairbanks campus in Nome. The Northern Norton Sound Fish and Game Advisory Committee was meeting for its biannual discussion of policy recommendations for state decision-makers. It's the kind of meeting that rarely excites the public, but this one turned into an impromptu hearing on the town's muskoxen problem. A dozen locals either called in or showed up in person, with several testifying to frequent run-ins and fears of more encounters. Mushers said that dogs were getting gored and it was getting harder to protect their kennels, but they were worried that any deterrence efforts would lead to accusations of wildlife harassment. The Nome Nugget, the local newspaper where I work as a reporter, published Nome resident Miranda Music's statement to the panel. "'What happened to Curtis was the final straw for me,' she said. "'We understand that musk oxen are here and that they will not go away, "'but we feel that they have been mismanaged "'and that we don't have the right to protect ourselves and our property "'without risk of us being prosecuted for defending ourselves.'" After the tragedy, Music helped compile testimonies from other residents. To many in Nome, Warland's death wasn't a freak accident. It was an indictment of the region's muskoxen management and the century of decisions that brought them here. One Inupiaq word for muskox is umengmuk, a term that refers to the animal's beard-like coat. The word's existence speaks to the Inupiat's long relationship with muskoxen, which once roamed the Arctic. Their decline is often attributed to climactic changes after the last ice age, along with predation and hunting. Around Nome, few, if any, indigenous stories about the animals survive. Mary Jane Litchard, an Inupiaq artist and healer who grew up in Lost River, Teller, Anchorage, and Nome, told me that she never heard stories about muskoxen growing up. As she said, not even from my granduncle when he told me true ancient stories. Elders told her that people sometimes saw creatures that were extinct, like mastodons, as a teenager in the 1960s, Litchard heard someone describe seeing a blue-coloured muskox and asking an elder if they'd seen a ghost. Records from early European settlers suggest that by the time they arrived, the animals were already rare in the region, mostly restricted to far northeastern Greenland and northern Canada. Jim Magdans worked for the Alaska Department of Fish and Games Division of Subsistence from 1981 to 2012 and has searched for stories about muskoxen. He said, Epidemic disease associated with exploration and colonization, 1837 smallpox, 1900 measles, 1917 influenza, caused massive cultural disruption. In some villages, only children survived. Indigenous histories of muskox use either died in the epidemics or were rarely recorded when oral histories were written by explorers and settlers. The average visitor to Nome today would never guess that muskoxen were ever ghosts on the landscape. The animals adorn guidebooks and artwork at gift shops and draw wildlife viewers and photographers. With their bulky coats, sloping shoulders, short legs and upturned horns, it's not hard to picture them roaming alongside saber-toothed tigers, woolly mammoths and other big-bodied beasts of the Pleistocene. But all the musk oxen around Nome today have ancestors that saw the inside of a train station in New Jersey. Their reintroduction to Alaska was the result of a decades-long campaign by early 20th century settlers and promoters, one that followed a template used many times over, before and since. It was a plan for developing the Arctic, drawn up without the consent of indigenous people. Even before the gold rush arrived in Nome, settlers were tinkering with the region's large fauna. On the treeless tundra landscapes, missionaries imagined fields of grazing animals and a whole new economy that would feed and help assimilate Alaska Natives. Later settlers saw an opportunity to make their own fortunes. The introduction of domestic reindeer is perhaps the best-known attempt to turn this colonial fantasy into reality. But others championed muskoxen as an Arctic agricultural alternative among them Wilhelm Jörg Steffensen, a Canadian anthropologist who relentlessly promoted the observations he made during a series of Arctic expeditions in the early 1900s. On one expedition, he interviewed indigenous people and settlers who told him of a hunting party that had killed a small herd of muskoxen around 1858. Since then, he wrote, no one near Point Barrow is known to have killed muskox or seen them marking their presumed extirpation from the region. After encountering the animals and hunting them in the Canadian Arctic, he endorsed the species as a source for the U.S. meat market. Though Stephenson sometimes challenged outsiders' notions of a, quote, lifeless and desolate Arctic, some of the colonial representatives who supported him did not. Stephenson apparently made a case for repopulating the Arctic with muskoxen to Thomas Riggs, governor of the Territory of Alaska, from 1918 to 1921. In his 1918 report to Congress, Riggs thanked Stephenson and wrote that muskoxen seemed, quote, designed to make a productive country out of barrens now serving no purpose, revealing the governor's view of the indigenous homelands of northern Alaska. Irving McKenney-Reed, who grew up in Nome's gold mining camps and was an early member of the Alaska Game Commission, was also a major force behind the reintroduction. He met Stephenson in Nome, collected stories about muskoxen across Alaska, and in 1922 travelled to New York, where he spoke with New York Zoological Park director William Hornaday about the zoo's experience with the species. Reed also promoted the scheme to the U.S. Congress, which in 1930 allocated $40,000 to the U.S. Biological Survey to acquire and domesticate muskoxen for Alaska. It would be another 40 years before the animals set hoof on the Seward Peninsula. In the summer of 1930, Norwegian sailors captured dozens of young muskoxen in eastern Greenland, and 34 of them arrived by steamship in New York Harbor that September. After a month-long quarantine, they began an epic journey by train and steamship and train again from New Jersey to their near-final destination outside Fairbanks. Eventually, the herd's habitat, in a clearing in a boreal forest, was deemed unsuitable due in part to the cost of the fencing required to keep muskoxen in and black bears out, and the biological survey's plans to domesticate them were abandoned. 31 muskoxen were moved to Nunavak Island off the coast of southwestern Alaska in 1936. The population grew and a program for transplanting them to the mainland was launched by state and federal partners in 1967. In 1970, 36 muskoxen were transferred to the Feather River watershed about 25 miles northwest of Nome. They didn't stay put. Within a year, they had travelled farther north and were living around the village of Brevig Mission. State and federal officials added another 35 animals in 1981 to supplement the fledgling population. After that, it took off, expanding across the Seward Peninsula. The population hit a peak in 2010 with a survey count of 2,903, but then declined until 2015 when it stabilised. The most recent survey of the Peninsula's musk oxen in 2021 counted 2,071. Nome has a tribally owned hospital, direct Alaska Airlines flights to Anchorage, and a gravel road system that makes it possible to access the varied landscapes of the Seward Peninsula. But no roads connect it with Alaska's cities. Mass-produced food and supplies must be flown or barged in, and the cost of living is high. In 2022, gas prices reached more than $7 a gallon. A gallon of milk can cost $8. The price of remoteness is even higher in the villages scattered around the Bering Strait. Nome serves as the hub community for 15 of those villages, which are majority Alaska Native and range in size from 80 to 800 residents. Inequities rooted in colonialism mean that several still lack basic services like water and sewer systems. Residents' ability to put local fish, meat and berries in their freezers is crucial not only to their food security, but to the survival of centuries old traditional life ways. Melanie Banke is a St. Lawrence Island Yupik and president and CEO of Kawerak, the region's tribal nonprofit consortium. In testimony to the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs in 2013, she said. To limit describing our way of life to food security would be like viewing the bread and wine of communion for the poverty-stricken from purely a nutritional standpoint. Our subsistence way of life provides us with sustenance, a sense of well-being and purpose, a feeling of belonging, the understanding that we are part of something much bigger than us as individuals. Pride in carrying on a way of life passed down from generation to generation, joy in sharing, and also serves as the core of our identity as an Alaskan Native civilization. She also described the barriers that impede the survival of these traditions. In order to harvest resources such as salmon, moose, and now muskoxen, Alaska natives must navigate a thicket of multi-jurisdictional policies, all while contending with the colonial legacy of exclusion from resource governance. Banke told me that she stands by those words today. Before muskoxen were introduced northwest of Nome in 1970, state and federal officials typically didn't consult, let alone inform, nearby residents and the main purpose of the introduction, to provide meat for residents, wouldn't be fulfilled for another two decades because the population had to multiply before hunting could be authorized. As a result, the imported musk oxen had to coexist with human communities that had not consented to their presence, who saw no immediate benefit from it, and had little or no recent experience with the animals. Friction between the new neighbours was, perhaps, inevitable. Kate Persons was the area biologist for the Alaska Department of Fish and Games' Nome office between 1997 and 2007, when muskoxen had reached the periphery of Nome, but had not yet become regulars in town. Most of the complaints about the animals that Persons fielded came from the villages. She recalled, People just really didn't like them, and that was a pretty prevalent feeling throughout the villages at that time. Muskoxen oxen often move in herds, which can range in size from a handful of animals up to 75. And while many animals flee from humans, musk-oxen tend to hold their ground, forming a tight line or circle. That makes them easy to hunt, but hard to scare off if they are, for example, trampling traditional gathering grounds for berries or tundra greens. When muskoxen hunting finally became a possibility in the Seward Peninsula in the mid-1990s, its management was convoluted and controversial. Many of Alaska's resources are governed by a dual management system, meaning that multiple federal and state authorities may share responsibility for wildlife. And their policies don't always align. For instance, the federal Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, passed in 1980, gives priority to rural residents, who are majority indigenous, in their use of fish and wildlife for subsistence purposes. In 1989, the state Supreme Court deemed such preferences illegal on state lands, and some in the hunting community continue to push back against the priority access held by rural Alaskans under federal law. Although some 60% of Alaska is federal land, most of the area immediately around Nome falls under state jurisdiction. Local subsistence users weren't the only group interested in hunting muskoxen. When sport hunting for the animals began on Nunavak Island in the 1970s and on the North Slope in the 1980s, locals in these regions had to compete for state hunting permits with sport hunters from Anchorage or Fairbanks. The Seward Peninsula is easier to access from these cities, and in the 1990s, many Peninsula residents feared they would face even fiercer competition for permits. After the area's muskoxen population dropped by nearly 25% between 2010 and 2012, the state put more restrictions on hunting. Now all applicants for state permits to hunt muskoxen around Nome must document an economic need for the animal's meat. During the 2022-23 season in the Seward Peninsula, 29 muskoxen were harvested in the state hunt and five were taken on federal land. Beyond the politics of hunting them, the management of muskoxen around Nome is complicated by how the animals move and don't move. Starting around 2007, for reasons researchers and managers can't fully explain, muskoxen seemed to become especially keen on Nome. They began spending more time in town, and reports of conflicts accumulated. Muskoxen broke through fences, mounted doorsteps, obstructed traffic, and trampled gravesites. They gored beloved pets— Before the Nome Airport installed a perimeter fence in 2019, herds sometimes interfered with flights by blocking the runways. The state doesn't consistently track human muskoxen conflicts, but the Nome Nugget tries to document any incidents. In fact, less than 24 hours before Warland's death, I spoke to Sean Pomrenki, a Nome resident and a star of the reality TV show Bering Sea Gold, whose 10 year old dog, Kona, had just survived her second gruesome brush with a muskox. Pomrenki said he thought more action to reduce conflicts would occur only after someone got hurt. The following day. His words felt eerily prescient. Why are muskoxen so attracted to Nome? There are a few theories. The presence of humans might shield them from predators like brown bears. Town might offer better dining options, too. Muskoxen usually start wandering into Nome in larger numbers in May, when plant life is starting to re-emerge. Claudia E. A biologist who has been studying muskoxen for more than two decades and is an associate professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks campus in Nome, suspects they're drawn to disturbed sites in and around town where thick stands of nutrient-packed young horsetails, willows, sedges and grasses sprout early in the season. Ehel says if they can access sites like this where they're ahead by even just a week or so and get this nutrient peak as early as possible, it just gives them a huge advantage. In fact, she thinks the muskoxen help tend these urban pastures, saying by coming back repeatedly, cropping these and leaving some fertilizer, they're basically maintaining their own lawns. A further complication for managers and residents is that more than one subpopulation of muskoxen likes to hang out in and around Nome. Stephenson believed that the animals rarely traveled more than five miles a month, but muskoxen defied those sedentary expectations soon after their reintroduction to Alaska. And in recent decades, state and federal biologists have tracked muskoxen crisscrossing the Seward Peninsula in stunning walkabouts. Managers and residents have been building an unofficial body of research in another area, muskox deterrence strategies. Over the last 15 years, state managers, airport officials, dog lot owners, and others in Nome have tried to scare off muskoxen with beanbag guns, fire hoses, squirt guns, helicopters, bear urine, chainsaws, and crumpled water bottles. No one knows why, but some muskoxen hate the sound of a plastic water bottle being crumpled. So far, it seems that heavy-duty game fencing is the only reliable way to keep humans and animals safe from muskoxen. Sarah Hensley, the Alaska Department of Fish and Games current area wildlife biologist for Nome, says, If you don't want wild animals in your yard, fencing is the answer. Hensley said local discussions always seem to revolve around what the agency is doing to push Muskoxen out of town, adding, Really, the conversation I think should be how do we protect our property permanently, which is through the use of fencing. Some community members resent the suggestion that fencing is the only solution. Fencing doesn't eliminate the prospect of unwanted encounters on mushing and hiking trails near town, though backcountry travel has always carried risks. And while muskoxen are less of a nuisance in town in winter, Nome's notorious snowdrifts can grow tall enough to render even the strongest fence useless. The Department of Fish and Game and other managers have improved their consultation policies since musk were introduced to the Seward Peninsula, but those changes can't solve the current problem or erase the original insult. Hensley said, I think that's where all of this contempt of the animal comes from, this feeling that we didn't even want them here. That's the number one thing I hear. I can have discussions all day long with folks about what they need to do, and they just come back and say, well, we never wanted them here in the first place. After Worland's death, Fish and Game faced pressure to go beyond its recommendation of better fencing. The Northern Norton Sound Fish and Game Advisory Committee, whose December 2022 meeting was unusually crowded, met again in March 2023. This time, the only attendees were the committee members, Hensley, myself, and a hunting guide, who called in to talk about bears. Hensley announced that Fish and Game would raise its annual muskoxen hunting quota in the Nome area from 9 animals to 30, and that the hunt would include female muskoxen for the first time in a decade. The intent is, in part, to make Nome less appealing to muskoxen, though a few seasons will likely be needed to test the strategy's effectiveness. Some committee members feared the measure went too far and could unintentionally cause the population to collapse. Other residents thought the changes didn't go far enough. Kami Cap Warland, Curtis's widow, said the lack of more proactive deterrence measures by Fish and Game dishonoured her husband's memory. Just a few weeks earlier, Iditarod musher Bridget Watkins had carried Warland's ashes to Nome in her sled. She crossed under the burled arch at the finish line, accompanied by a procession of emergency response and law enforcement vehicles. At the heart of the controversy lies a bigger question. Magdans wondered, would the Muskox situation in Nome be different if the people of the Seward Peninsula had managed them all along, instead of the Alaska Board of Game and the Federal Subsistence Board? He added, For me... That's kind of the big question that faces all of Alaska. Would Seward Peninsula people have made different decisions? And would this musher be alive today if local people had more authority in managing these resources? After Warland's death, Melanie Bankey of Kawerak wrote an open letter to policymakers and game managers asking for further action to protect the community saying, our tribal leaders and elders traditionally were the ones who made decisions about the take of fish and game in our region and what is reasonable and allowable and what measures to take to protect our people. I guarantee this situation would not be as out of hand as it is now if that authority had not been replaced by the current management regimes that are woefully inadequate considering the fish crashes and the current threat to humans posed by muskox. Still, locals who manage to regularly get hunting permits are finally seeing the benefits of muskoxen. They're good eating, and in winter they have unusually lightweight but super warm underwool called kivyut that can be spun into yarn and is far more valuable than cashmere. Roy Ashenfelter, an Inupiaq hunter from White Mountain who spent decades working on various subsistence advisory boards and who now chairs the board of the Bering Straits Native Corporation, has seen public opinion about muskoxen become more divided. He said, Now you've got a situation where that dynamic is not to one side. It could be argued equally on both sides. There's no time machine to reverse the situation, and no one is seriously campaigning to eliminate muskoxen from the Seward Peninsula. Banki and her colleagues at Kawerak are strong advocates of more co-management and co-stewardship of the region's resources, but right now they are focused on the salmon crisis, which affects far more households. She told me, The most urgent situation, and thus where most of our energy has been spent, Is with our fish declines. As Nome continues to negotiate its relationship with muskoxen, the animals might serve as a cautionary case study for state and federal agencies. When I dug through the old arguments for their introduction, trying to understand the roots of the current frustrations and resentments, I was struck by a sense of familiarity. The excitement about muskoxen from Stephenson and his ilk was fueled by outsiders' dreams of untapped Arctic potential. The boom that's just around the corner, the fix that's bound to guarantee prosperity to a region remote from national power centers. In 2023, the details of the schemes look different an expanded port to accommodate more cruise ships and cargo barges and military vessels, a graphite mine to accommodate the national drive for American-sourced critical minerals. But their shape remains familiar. Often these plans come from outsiders who imagine something new and grand here, whether it's a field full of productive ungulates or a Navy destroyer in port. And now, as then... They offer vague promises of local benefits, accompanied by serious questions about the control of resources and the specter of tragic consequences. This story was originally published in High Country News, an independent magazine dedicated to coverage of the Western United States. You can find more news and stories from them on their website at hcn.org.